Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. So we are here with Elon Carr. It's good to be with you. Yes. Thank you. Rarely do I ever introduce somebody just by reading their resume. Today I'll make an exception and you'll see why. Elon Carr was born in Manhattan. His family immigrated from Israel, being Iraqi refugees. He graduated from UC Berkeley with a bachelor's degree in philosophy and political science. Go Bears. Go Bears, I know, I was waiting for that. (laughs) And from Northwestern University with a law degree. Elon is a JAG officer with the US Army and an Iraqi war veteran. Some irony there. (laughs) Elon served as national president for Alpha Epsilon Pi fraternity. You also served on the National Council for APAC, the American Israel Public Action Committee. You are fluent in not just English, Hebrew, and Arabic. How many years have you spent as a criminal prosecutor? About 13. Just left two months ago. And what kind of cases would you take on? So I was a deputy district attorney in L.A. County, and I focused a lot over many years on gang cases. There are gangs in Los Angeles. I've confirmed that rumor. Um, and, uh, and, you know, really violent crime, awful crime. And, uh, and then in the last year of my duties uh, as a prosecutor, I was in a special victim unit. And so I prosecuted uh, child molesters, rapists, uh, domestic uh, abusers, and really awful crimes that, uh, that turn your stomach, but it felt good to, uh, to, to bring justice to uh, victims of those horrible crimes. You were a congressional candidate. And if all of that that I talked about wasn't enough, on February 5th, 2019, your title grew exponentially <laughs> when the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, appointed you, and you are henceforth known as Elon S. Carr, Special Envoy to Monitor and Combat Anti-Semitism. Thank you. My title grew in length of wor- in number of <laughs> words, that's for sure. So the national president of AEPI, I should say, is known as Supreme Master. So you're a Supreme Master, you're a Special Envoy. (laughs) So Special Envoy Carr, officially thank you for being with us here today. Thank you, Chaim. Those were my words. You've talked a little bit about a sliver of what you do, but in your own words, tell us who you are and tell us what you do. Well, first of all, I want to thank you uh, for putting this together. Uh, This is an amazing room, packed to capacity. And, uh, And I want to thank you also for your leadership. Uh, in, in Las Vegas and beyond, we've been friends and, and AEPI brothers for years, and uh, I've watched and marveled by the impact you've made, and so I want to thank you for that, and I want to thank also, we have here representatives of ADL, uh, one, of, uh, one of the first addresses that, uh, that anyone fighting anti-Semitism would go to, I and mean, there are 
a few organizations that do breathtakingly important work in this area, and of course ADL is, is one of those addresses. I want to thank uh, our leaders from ADL here. And then I, I really want to acknowledge uh, two uh, heroes of mine. You mentioned them, Chaim. Uh, really heroes, and that is uh, uh, Dr. Miriam and Sheldon Adelson. And I can tell you um, what they have done for, for the Jewish people in the United States, their extraordinary leadership and their, their uh, commitment to, uh, to a, a stronger America and a stronger Jewish people, a safer Jewish people, is, uh, is really in a league by itself. And I'm so proud to call them my friends and mentors. And I know they were involved in making this event happen, so I want to acknowledge... Uh, everything they've done for uh, for the world, they are the best, and uh, we'll never uh, be able to express our debt to them enough. So, what I do. <laughs> so, first of all, in 2004, Congress, in overwhelming bipartisan fashion, created the office I now hold. And it, it bears m mention, we have to think about that, the most powerful country in the history of the world, created an office by law and by design focused on protecting the Jewish people throughout the world. That is an extraordinary fact and, uh, and one of the many reasons why we can all be so proud to be Americans. Congress in bipartisan fashion has reaffirmed its dedication to that over and over again from Congress to Congress and d administration after administration have successively affirmed their commitment to the office I hold and to the cause that this office is dedicated to, which is fighting this age-old scourge, this, this ancient human sickness that is anti-Semitism. And so uh, I am very grateful now to, uh, to be able to advise the Secretary of State on uh, this issue and direct U.S. policy and programs concerning anti-Semitism and serve as as the senior diplomatic representative of our country overseas on this issue. And this is an urgent time to be taking on this challenge because anti-Semitism is increasing all over the world. And so we're confronting it, we're gonna to continue to confront it, and uh, I couldn't be prouder to, uh, to, as I told the secretary when, I, when we first sat down together, to be able to hold an office where I, I, I can serve the Jewish people and serve my country in the same office. It doesn't get better than that. So I'm, I'm very proud to be doing this. I think it's safe to say for the rest of this clap, snap, whatever it is, but uh, audience participation is great. Um, from your intro, I deliberately left out your wife and your children, but spend a few minutes and tell us about them. Well, I definitely married up. And uh, Dahlia is, is just the best. She's a, a medical doctor, a rheumatologist. And, uh, and thank God, she, she's the, one of the greatest gifts of my life, and she gave me the other three greatest gifts of my life, two, two girls and a boy. And, uh, and I'll tell you, I'm doing this for them. You know, I think about, about um, this vile poison that is anti-Semitism, as President Trump called it yesterday, and he called it that also a few months ago. It is a vile poison. And, uh, and we fight this fight for them, for our kids and for our grandkids, and so that they will inherit a better world. I'll tell you, when I got the call, um, actually the State Department called me, it was out of the blue, not to offer me the job, but to ask if I would be considered uh, as a candidate. And, uh, and I said, of course, I said, well, thank you, I'm flattered, but you know, I need to talk to my wife. I mean, it's in Washington, D.C., we live in L.A. I'll get back to you tomorrow. And I spoke to Dahlia, and I told her about the phone call. And this is why I married up. Without hesitation, 
She said, you must say yes. It's a no-brainer. It won't be easy on us. You know, we're in L.A., you'll be in Washington, it'll be hard. But you're serving our country, you're serving the Jewish people, you must say yes. It's a no-brainer. That's what she said, without hesitation. Because she gets it. She gets it. Sometimes we have to make sacrifices, but that's what... That's what uh, tikkun olam requires, that we make sacrifices uh, to make our world a better place. And that's what, um, that's what she is proud that I'm doing, and that's what I'm so proud to be doing. How long is your appointment for? So it's a political appointment. I serve at the pleasure of the president. So far, he's uh, happy. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, actually, yesterday, he, uh, he spoke and, uh, and uh, had very nice things to say about, about my work, which, for which I'm incredibly grateful. And so um, that is, uh, you know, I'm looking at this as, as his, his administration, his first term, um, is, is in another just shy of two years. And it's very, very important that uh, during his first term, uh, we get results. Not enough to, to make declarations, not enough to make speeches, not enough to go to conferences. We've got to get results. Uh, this is too urgent a time. This is too urgent a crisis. And so I'm determined that in these... This, sorry, this being anti... This being anti-Semitism. Okay. And so I'm determined in the next two years uh, that we, uh, we, we really get results. And, uh, and, so, uh, and so that when the president begins his second term, he can look to, uh, to great things in the future for, uh, for the Jewish people in the world. You and I met when I was an undergraduate and in Alpha Epsilon Pi fraternity. I went to a convention over the summer. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for the snaps. Uh, you were a volunteer at the time. I remember exactly the ballroom where you were standing, where I was. I think Marty, Marty Weinberg was here, said that's Elon Carr, and gave me the, the rundown of who you are and what you mean to the fraternity. You and I traveled to Israel together on the pilot program yeah. that Asia Torah started called AE Pi Jerusalem Road Trip. You were at my wedding. You and Dahlia were at Danielle and my wedding. You and your whole family have been to my home multiple times, our home. And I want to point out something and ask you about it. On one of those trips where you visited our home, you scolded me in my own home. <laughs> Do you remember why? You, you were speaking English with your kids? Yes. <laughs> with, with Nathan. So our first child, boy, uh, was born. Nathan was maybe a year or so old, a year and a half old. And that's what you observed, that I was speaking English with him. And you cussed at me in Arabic, I think. <laughs> and you scolded me. What would cause you to do that? Well, I told you, I said, you know, I, I know how, how uh, excellent your Hebrew is from personal experience. And I said, you should be speaking Hebrew with your kids. And, and that's what we do. You know, I don't say a word in English to my kids ever. And the reason is, is that the United States is our country, but Hebrew is the language of our people. And, uh, and when a kid, that's right, that's right. And when a kid, when a kid speaks Hebrew, and uh, or an adult for that matter, and when you can, when you can open up the Tanakh and read it like it's a newspaper, and when you can go to Israel and and feel at home, it entirely changes how a Jew defines himself or herself. It it makes you understand that we are part of a people, an an ancient people, and we have a lineage, we have a cultural heritage. And that is so important in this day and age where assimilation is rampant, but also anti-Semitism is increasing. Why are they related? Because in order for us to combat this, Jews have to understand what's at stake. We have to know who we are. We have to stand up and fight it. And so 
That's why we speak only Hebrew. My kids don't answer me in English. They only answer me in Hebrew. And uh, I'm very proud of that. And, uh, and I think you're doing that too. Because of you, honestly. Well, Honestly. Um, thank you. I'm, I, if I had that influence on yeah. you, I'm, that's it. I've, I'm done. <laughs> no, really, that's great to know. So my podcast is called Takeaways, and it's about my takeaways from the people who have influenced me. And I'd like to ask you, what has been the single biggest influence of your life that's defined and shaped you the most? Well, I think other than obviously, I mean, my parents made me who I am, right? <clears throat> and schools were important. But I would have to say other than my family, um, and certainly up to my, up to my marriage, um, the most important factor influencing who I am is, is AEPI. There's no question about that. I, I learned, you know, when a kid goes to college, you're, you're 18 years old, you're away from home, at least in the United States. You know, you're, you're, we don't go to the Army here at 18, most of us. Um, you, you know, you're away from home for the first time. And these are formative years when, when we're discovering who we are, and when we're, um, you know, living uh, apart from the watchful eye of our parents, and we're finding ourselves through our peers. And, and I'd say AEPI taught me more than I could even quantify about myself, about my strengths, and about my weaknesses. Some of the most important lessons in life is about you know, what your weaknesses are, what you need to compensate for. Um, but the entire idea of, of service and the importance of service to the Jewish people and to our country, um, the idea of leadership and what that is and how to be a leader, all of these things I learned in AEPI, and it, it is really extraordinary how in everything I do, whether as a prosecutor, as a, as a U.S. Army officer, I mean, I, I led a, an anti-terrorism team, helped to lead, I should say, an anti-terrorism team in Iraq. Uh, what I'm doing now, uh, it's amazing how, how the lessons that I learned uh, as, as a brother of AEPI from the age of 18 and, and, and even today, but certainly 18, 19, 20, 21, while I was in college, it's amazing how influential and, tr and formative and transformative those lessons were. So I would have to give that as my answer. AEPI has been, has been profoundly important. What is, what is one example of a lesson you learned while you were in college and in AEPI? So I'll tell you the best lesson I learned. Um, Frederick the Great once said, you know, one of, one of really the, the, the greatest military leaders in history um, and a, a statesman of the highest order once said that the worst misfortune, the greatest misfortune that could befall a prince is, is never to experience failure. And so I, I will tell you, the, one of the greatest lessons of Abe, in addition to the, you know, the incredible, profound friendships, real family, and, and the feeling that, that I'm safe with my brothers, you know, and that, that you just can't put a price on that. But one of the greatest lessons I ever experienced was, was losing an election in my chapter. Now, you know, I ran for Congress, and we did pretty well. Finished first in my primary, and then we outperformed party registration by 18 points in the general election. But I ran out of money. You know, you lose an election for Congress, and you can say, well, you know, had I raised more money, it would have been different. And, and I gotten, had, I, had I bought more rating points on TV, and I sent more mail pieces, and, and had we done? But you know what? When, when you lose an election, in a context where the voters are the people who know you best, who know you as well as you know yourself, you can't blame fundraising, and you can't blame your consultant. And he, he, if he's watching, I, I don't blame my consultant. He might be one. I don't blame my consultant. My consultant's great. But you can't blame anything. You can't blame anything other than yourself. You can't. These guys 
These guys are your best friends. And if they vote against you and pick someone else, it's because they think that other person is better. Hold and on, you're talking about these guys <clears throat> being the constituents, so to speak, in my a, in API? In my chapter. Yeah, I'm talking okay. about students. When Got I ran it. when I ran for, for president in my chapter, I'm not talking about international president, but when I ran for president in my chapter, I was, I don't know, 19 or 20. And, uh, and that experience, you know, obviously it hurts and then you get over it and you think, okay, what, what are they not seeing? You know, what am I not showing them? Why do I think, you know, why do I think I'm, I'm, I'm better able to do this than they think I am? And I have to tell you, that experience made me who I am today. It really led me to think of <clears throat> not what I think internally, but how do I come across and, and how do I relate to people and, and what is leadership? Leadership isn't holding an office. Leadership is interpersonal interactions in the first order. And so when you start to really examine that, you, you, you improve meteorically. And it was that lesson that did it. So I would say the greatest gift my brothers gave me is voting for someone else. Very cool. So we're talking about AEPI, and of course you and I have a long history within AEPI. We were on a road trip once, and you told me a story about when you came of age politically. I don't know if you remember, but maybe this image will help you. So on the screen is the Shah of yeah. Iran, and there was a letter that you wrote to him. Can you share that story? Sure. Well, first I have to give some background. You know, you mentioned, Chaim, that, that we're Iraqi refugees. My mother, uh, as a as a young girl uh, heard a knock at the door one day. This was in 1948. And uh, there were soldiers, Iraqi soldiers. They asked for her father. And, uh, and her father, my grandfather, came to the door. He had shaving cream on his face. It was early in the morning. And they dragged him away. They took him away. They, they paraded him through the streets in leg irons with other Jews they had rounded up, really like a slave, people jeering, throwing things. And then they threw him in prison. And for a while, my family stayed in Iraq. They visited him in prison. And finally, after a year or two of this, by the way, no young girl should have to visit her father in prison when he's there for no reason other than being a Jew. And after two years of this, he said, flee, don't wait for me, flee the country. And so my mother, my uncle, who was a toddler, and, and my grandmother, uh, her, their mother, without my grandfather, fled across the border to Iran. This was a very different Iran from today because the man in the picture, uh, the Shah, was helping Jews escape and giving Jews asylum were fleeing Iraq. And so my family fled to Iran. And from Iran, after Iran was a way station in Tehran, they, they emigrated to Israel. And so I always felt incredible uh, gratitude to the Shah for, for being an incredibly staunch supporter of the United States. You weren't born yet. No, 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 no. But, but this was a story after. I mean, this, this was in, we're talking about 1950, this happened. But, but when I was born and when I was a kid, I, I always felt incredible gratitude because this story of my family's persecution in Iraq was indelibly etched into, into my mind. And so I always felt this, this great gratitude to the Shah for being a staunch ally of the United States and a supporter of Israel, a supporter of the Jewish people. So when he was deposed in 1979, I was, uh, I don't know, 11 or, or yeah, I was actually going on, I was 11. I, I, wrote, I wrote letters to him and I, I uh, at one point offered him my couch as political asylum. <laughs> Um, Where and, did you uh, mail the letters? I mailed the letters to, so the, f the first one, he was in the Bahamas because we weren't giving him, um, we weren't admitting him into the United States, which, by the way, I think was disgraceful. And so I sent a letter to the Bahamas where he was. And then <laughs> the second letter was a get well card when he was in New York hospital. Finally, he was dying and we let him into the country and he was in New York hospital. 
<clears throat> and I still have the responses uh, from his chief of protocol and from uh, and from uh, his wife, the Empress. And so I, uh, I had occasion to meet with his son, uh, Reza, and I, I showed him the responses, and he couldn't believe the date. And he saw the response with the crown and the stationery. But anyway, I, I came of age politically because the questions that were being asked about the about the revolution in Iran were, were deep questions about legitimacy and sovereignty and cruelty. I mean, obviously the regime had had human rights abuses, and and I found that fascinating. So and that that began my my fascination in 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 terms of uh, the role of citizen in society and, and social justice and all the questions that we struggle with uh, year in and year out. Well, we talked about your undergraduate experiences. Bridge us between that and when you joined the armed forces. What what was going on for you? So when you went I was to law a, school, yeah, I was a first year law student, and uh, it was during Desert Storm. And uh, for those of you here who remember, Desert Storm was the first media war. You know, CNN, uh, uh, night vision, uh, you know, night oh, vision right. shots of Baghdad, and we we were we were uh, gathered around. You know, this was before the internet. We were gathered around the television every night, watching this. And and I remember thinking, you know. Here I am, you know, I'm going to a pretty good law school. I'm living in a great city, Chicago, and, and I'm going out to great bars. I have great friends. And every night I'm watching these kids, 19, 20, 21-year-old kids, my age and younger, um, eating sand from me. And I'm the beneficiary of the way of, I'm the beneficiary of their sacrifices. And, and my way of life, blessed as it is to be an American, it's because of them. So I remember thinking back then, you know, I'm going to do that. Not that being war. I mean, I obviously would have been, terrified to be be in war uh, but but I said you know what I'm going to uh, I'm going to join the army I, and I don't want to make a career of it but I'm going to I'm going to serve and one week in a month uh, two weeks a year isn't much but at least at least I'll be doing my part to help shoulder the burden of So you're in law school at the time when you're making this decision? I made the decision in law school. I joined uh, well after law school and uh, and little did I know uh, the one week and a month uh, turned into a, a quite a bit longer after 9/11, when deployment, you know, mobilization, deployment became a, a question of when, not if, and and I ended up deploying to the very place uh, where during Desert Storm I was watching and seeing those sacrifices, saying, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna shoulder the burden of defending my country. I ended up going there, and there uh, being Iraq, there being Iraq, yep. and and of course that was a place from which my family fled, and so here I'm the son of a of a refugee from Iraq returning to this country to help Iraqis build a free, just, democratic society. And what a twist of fate, and you just can't make that up. It was a great privilege for me, really, to, to be doing that, to come full circle and to respond to the persecution of my family by trying to build a better world and trying to make that country better. What a great response. It's a Jewish response to injustice in the world, right? How so? Tikkun olam. Look Explain. at look at the response of the Jewish people to the greatest act of injustice in the history of civilization. The greatest act. I mean, the mass murder of of six million Jews for no reason other than they're Jews. And our response was not terrorism and not hatred. Our response was was to build the Jewish state. Right out of the ashes of the Holocaust, the Jews built uh, the Jewish state, a a beacon of democracy and of of light and, and of inspiration for the world. What a, what a gift, right? And so that's, that's the Jewish response to injustice. That's the American response to injustice. When the United States sees injustice in the world, we fight to make it better. We fight to uplift the downtrodden, to bring democracy and freedom to those who, who suffer under tyranny. 
And that's why the United States and Israel are such close allies and partners, because we have the same values, because we see the same future, and because we work for that future. And that's why we're, we're best friends. Going back to your work in Iraq on behalf of the United States, what were you doing? You were a JAG officer. Right. So I, I helped to lead an anti-terrorism team. This was actually not a JAG function at all. Okay. Um, it was a, an anti-terrorism team based in Baghdad, but we had missions around the country, around the city and around the country, uh, meant to prevent terrorist attacks. We would gather intelligence from the community. We would uh, uh, assess terrorist courses of action and then take steps to prevent attacks. So it was incredibly rewarding for two reasons. First of all, these were life-saving missions where we really uh, you know, prevented attacks and saved lives. But then also, it was incredibly rewarding because I wasn't sequestered on some, you know, some military base. I was out and about meeting Iraqis on the street, cops on the corner, kids on the street, and, uh, and really getting to know the countryside and interacting with Iraqis in Arabic, which was incredibly uh, rewarding. And so uh, it was a great experience. And then I was extended and reassigned. And my second job there was as a prosecutor, but here too, not a typical JAG function. I was one of a few prosecutors who were assigned to prosecute terrorists who had attacked our troops. And those prosecutions were, were conducted in an Iraqi court before Iraqi judges under Iraqi law. And so this was the first time in history that US military officers appeared and litigated in an Arab tribunal. We really made history, and it was, it was incredibly exciting. It, it really made a difference. Say something in Arabic. Shlonik uh, Habibi. What are you saying? That was an Iraqi Muslim dialect. So. Um, you say, how are you in Iraqi Muslim? You know, I grew up with Iraqi Jewish dialect, and so I had to relearn because, uh, you know, you don't want to advertise that you're Jewish when you're conducting missions around, uh, around Iraq. But, what was uh, the language training like? So, well, again, I grew up with, with Iraqi Jewish dialect, but before I deployed, I spent three months at, uh, at Fort Lewis relearning because I had to learn Iraqi Muslim dialect. And so, ah, Seattleers, it was uh, just a clap for Seattle. Um, and so, uh, and so it was intensive, an intensive course with other Arabic-speaking soldiers. Some of them were Lebanese-Americans, Egyptian-Americans, or DLI products. And it was uh, an intense course in Iraqi Muslim dialect. You mentioned not being bogged down in a base while you were there. Yeah. Tell us what this picture is about here. So one of my great privileges. Thank you. Is that so you? Yeah, imagine You got that. a pistol. I had more hair. Um, <laughs> So, uh, you know, I got, to, I got to Baghdad, and we had, we had taken over uh, the presidential palace of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, in Baghdad. And he, he had built many palaces, but this was the presidential, presidential palace. It had been the royal palace. And I saw posted a list of services by the chaplain. You know, every DOD entity has a chaplain, and so the Coalition Provisional Authority had a chaplain. And he had posted a list of services in this lavish marble room, you can imagine, the palace of Saddam Hussein. And it was a very ecumenical list. Catholic mass on Sunday, Protestant worship on Sunday, Shia, Sunni. But there was something missing. And I said, what is this? We came to liberate Iraq. Are we really paying lip service to anti-Semitism? Can't be. And so I marched into the office of the chaplain. He was a colonel at the time. I was a lieutenant, so... I marched lightly, and I was polite. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, sir, um, you know, I see this list of services. It's all well and good, but, you know, there's nothing Jewish on the list. Is there a reason? And you know what? His answer was so absolutely emblematic 
of, of America, of the armed forces of America, and of the chaplaincy? His answer was, yeah, there's a reason. There's no one to lead it. I've been asking everybody. I can't lead it. Can you lead services? And I said, sir, sign me up. And uh, you know what? Another thing I learned in AAPI, and of course from my parents and my upbringing, is, is you stand up and lead. And when you have an opportunity to express yourself and to embrace, embrace your, your faith and embrace your heritage, you do it. And you do it even though it might be uncomfortable. You know, I, some people said, don't do this. You know, you don't want to advertise yourself as, as the Jew in, in, in the palace. You have missions outside around the country. And I said, you know what? Uh, this is why I'm here. And so sign me up. Is that so why your face isn't shown here? So that <laughs> no, I'm so curious. Is that? No, it's just someone just took how they took picture. the picture. Yeah. So uh, the first thing we did a few months after uh, after Baghdad fell was it was Hanukkah in 2003, and so we came together, Jewish service members and civilians, and uh, lit a Hanukkah. The Hanukkah in that picture was created. It's a piece of art. It's an artwork, piece of art, created and donated to the Coalition Provisional Authority by Oded Halachmi, an Iraqi Jewish refugee who fled Iraq to Israel. And he made that Hanukkiah to donate it, donate it to the Coalition Provisional Authority as a gift. And so here, a son of an Iraqi refugee lit the Hanukkiah of an Iraqi refugee to say, to say, here we are, we are banishing the darkness. What is Hanukkah about? It's about defeating despotism and re-sanctifying land defoiled by tyranny. So we, to light that and to say, Banu we've come to banish darkness. It's exactly what the United States was in that country to do. What a privilege that was. And what a, what a great moment. So we talked about a little bit your life as a prosecutor, your life at the armed forces. You ran, you mentioned some statistics around your campaign for Congress. And we know the outcome, and we know the headlines. Tell me what you felt when you read this or heard the news for the first time. Well, losing sucks, first of all. Um, <clears throat> but, but I'll tell you, I never for a moment doubted I, I, I deeply believe in God. It, it informs everything I do in life. And I never for a moment doubted that it was for the best. In fact, you know, the election's November, a general election, right? Shortly after the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, we're in synagogue all the time. Not once did I pray to win the election. I prayed for what is best. Because who knows what is best? So mm. I always say, God, please, the best thing should happen. You know, put me in a place where I can make the most difference for my country, for the Jewish people, and for, for a better world. That's what I always pray for. And that's what I prayed for after the election. I said, you know, I lost, it's uncomfortable. You lick your wounds, but then you move on. You say, okay, this is for the best. So what is it that I'm meant to do? And here I am. And you know, uh, I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's amazing how things work out. And, uh, and first of all, that campaign and the strength of my campaign put me on the radar of the administration. So even the campaign was for the best. And then the loss of the campaign allowed me to do this. And so, you know, it really is Elohim Gadol. God is great. And, uh, and we have to trust that, uh, that things are really for the best. So this being the next set of headlines. Wow. That's yeah. when you were appointed by <coughs> Secretary of State in your current role. Yeah. So tell me, I'm going to ask you bluntly, what the heck does a special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism actually do so like i said 
diplomatic representative on this issue. I advise the Secretary of State on U.S. policy on this issue, and I direct all policies and programs mm -hmm. concerning anti-Semitism. So what does that really mean? Ah, so complicated question, because anti-Semitism is a complicated phenomenon. Um, my job is twofold, statutorily, monitor and combat. Each presents a challenge. Monitoring anti-Semitism, what does that mean? You know, you can count Jews getting beaten up in certain parts of Europe. Um, is that anti-Semitism? Of course it is. But we all know anti-Semitism is far broader and far deeper. How, hold on one second. On the monitoring part, what you just said, there's a report about someone getting, uh, they got beat up on the streets in Europe. How does all of that get cataloged, so to speak, monitored and flow up to your office? So we have a staff. We work with, with European countries on, on uh, reporting of, of hate crimes. Um, you'd be surprised to know that, that uh, the Europeans, most, almost all of them, don't disaggregate hate crime data. So you actually don't know, if a ADL is in the room, you'll probably nod vigorously, you don't know if a hate crime is against Jews or against gays. They, they report it as a hate crime, but it, it doesn't, the data isn't further disaggregated. One of my big asks when I'm going to Europe, by the way, I'm leaving in three weeks, is, um, is to um, increase the accuracy of reporting. So we know exactly what's happening. So now what do we do? We get reports from police and governments, but we have to supplement those reports by the reports we get from Jewish organizations like ADL, like AJC, like B'nai B'rit, uh, like uh, NCSEJ for Eastern Europe, um, and our embassies, which, which report those datas, th that data, and, and we work directly with the Jewish communities in Europe. So we assemble that data. But again, an attack on a, on a Jew it's certainly anti-Semitism, but doesn't begin to capture the many facets and the depths, the depth of anti-Semitism. What is anti-Semitism? It's those attacks. It's also statements by leaders uh, that are that are anti-Semitic. It's it's textbooks that are that indoctrinate anti-Semitic hate in the next generation, which is a, an especially urgent. Where are those task. textbooks found? Well, in the Arab world, certainly, even even in some countries that are allies of ours. Um, have you actually seen a textbook? Of course. I, I look at them. I monitor them. We, we have projects. It's, it's, some of these textbooks are, are you shake your head, it's, 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 out of, it's out of Nazi Germany in the, 19, in the 1930s, some of these textbooks. What's, uh, w give <coughs> an example of what is in one of the textbooks. Oh, I mean, um, the sorts of, of things Jews do, that Jews inject poison into, into society, that, that Israel is, is, is killing babies. That, I mean, it's it just... It goes on and on and on. You cannot believe the kind of indoctrination that mm. happens uh, in the next generation, and that is such an urgent task we face. So it's textbooks. It's online hate. It's it's what you see on the on the internet. Of course, the of course social media is is doesn't cause these things, but it's a vector for these diseases. Um, it's also government inaction when they should act. It's government action when they shouldn't. A lot of people don't know that there are countries that have banned shrita, banned the kosher slaughtering of, of animals, main, meaning you cannot have kosher meat in these countries. One country... That's anti-Semitic? One country nearly banned brit milah, circumcision. You ban circumcision, certainly, and kosher meat largely. You, it is an expulsion of the Jewish community. It is a forced expulsion. And now, is it anti-Semitic? Well, certainly in effect it is. Now you can say, well... You know, some countries would say, well, it's, uh, it's we're, we're, we're concerned with animal rights. That's something, uh, you know, I don't want to uh, show our diplomatic cards now in this interview, but, 
but believe me, we have things to say about this, and we, we the, the United States has, has, has clear concerns about this. We're going to be taking those concerns to those capitals and uh, making clear uh, what the effect is, whether the intent is anti-Semitic or not. I don't question uh, the good faith of our friends. If they say the intent is not, I take them at their word. But when the effect is to expel the Jewish community, mm -hmm. that has to be addressed. And so anti-Semitism is all of those things. And for each type and facet of anti-Semitism, the response is different. But there has to be a response. And we have to confront it for what it is. And we have to apply the pressure that the United States is certainly capable of applying when you're talking about those many kinds of anti-Semitism. So I was surprised to learn that your role in your official capacity is not necessarily domestic anti-Semitism. Right. Is that true? So the statutory definition of my role is foreign policy. It's why I'm in the State okay. Department. So it's anti-Semitism outside of the United States. However, and I've been saying this publicly, and, uh, and until the secretary tells me, no, this is my story and I'm sticking to it. Um, domestic anti-Semitism, certainly on college campuses, very often has a foreign component. There's foreign connections, foreign funding, foreign organizations involved. And you know what? If there's, a f if there's any foreign entity involved in it, that makes it my business. And so we're going to confront anti-Semitism. We're going to be calling it out domestically mm -hmm. as well. We're going to be confronting it domestically as well. And I'm proud to say also one thing we're doing, and this is very exciting, we're creating, with the help of other great leaders in the government, we're creating an interagency task force to focus on anti-Semitism domestically. Fancy. It is. So I'm going to be part of it. We have a de Department of Education leaders. We have Department of Justice leaders. We have Treasury leaders. We have, uh, we have DHS and we have Commerce. And we are so coming together. So why is it together. important to get all of, all of those offices? Well, because, because when, you're, when you're trying to, to focus on anti-Semitism in a full court press in this country, those are the addresses, right? Treasury is where the money flow is. Department of Justice is where, is where crime is investigated or civil torts are investigated. Uh, the Department of Education, right? We're talking about campuses. What's going on in campuses, Chaim, you know we've been doing this work in AAPI before I took on this role for years. What's going on on college campuses in the United States is a threat to America. Not only a threat to Jews, threat to the United States. And so we've got to stop these, these anti-American and anti-Semitic How is it movements. a threat to the United States? Well, look, when you look at what anti-Semitism is, th the hatred of Jews is really the hatred of American values. The values on which this country was built, the values that make our country great, are the same values that are under attack by the very sources that are attacking Jews. Whether it's radical Islam, whether it's white supremacists, or whether it's the ultra-radical anti-Zionist left, it is attack, an attack on American values, right? And so, and so to fight anti-Semitism is to fight anti-Americanism. I'll tell you, President Trump called this a vile poison. That's what this is. It's very important to, to say that anti-Semitism isn't only about the Jews. And if it were only about the Jews, that would be reason enough to fight it with every breath we have. To protect the most persecuted minority in history, that would be moral reason enough to do it. But it's not. Anti-Semitism is a vile poison, as the president said, because it is history's greatest barometer of human suffering. Every society that has embraced this vile poison has rotted to its core and has produced human suffering at a level that defies description. And so you want to you make the world a better place? 
You want to uplift humanity? You want to end human suffering? This is one of the first addresses. Fighting anti-Semitism is the way to do it, among other ways. And so, and so to do this really is to repair the world and to fight for American values. And that's why I have to say our leaders could not be more ferocious and more committed to this issue. The President of the United States, in his State of the Union address, only the most important speech the President makes all year, and there isn't a lot of spare real estate in that speech. And he spent a lot of time not only honoring Holocaust victims, but talking about, about this horrific disease that is anti-Semitism and saying how we must tear it out of society. He also said something else right after the Pittsburgh massacre. He said, those who seek the Jews' destruction, we will seek your destruction. Now, I'll give credit. I'll give credit. I'll give credit to Israel's amazing great ambassador, Ron Dermer, a great friend of mine, who said, who said, we can't overstate the importance of that statement. Few leaders in the history of the world have said that. A leader of, of, of the, a world leader saying, you go after the Jews, we're coming after you, that is an amazing statement. And so the president has been forceful on this issue and his support of Israel, I mean, walking out of the human, UN Human Rights Council and, and standing up for Israel's sovereignty in the Golan Heights in Jerusalem, it is unprecedented. And now my boss, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of State has been, has been absolutely forceful in standing up for the Jewish people and for the state of Israel. We couldn't have better leaders. We couldn't have people who care about this more. So I'm so proud to be part of the administration team in fighting anti-Semitism and standing up for the Jewish people and for the Jewish state whenever we can, everywhere in the world that we are. So I'm, I couldn't be prouder of it. That is one part of the anti-Semitism conversation as far as what's going well. As you're, I'm going to ask you to report on what is the state of anti-Semitism, and then we'll open it up for some Q&A. Yeah. So that's, that's the good stuff that you just talked about. Yeah. What's the other side? Currently, right. as, as we're sitting here now, what's going on in the world? So it's pretty bad. I mean, uh, anti-Semitism is on the rise throughout the world. Uh, attacks on, on uh, Jews... Uh, Jewish individuals and Jewish institutions have gone up. Um, social media surveys have showed in some countries in Europe a quadrupling of anti-Semitic hate speech. Um, a shocking 80, nearly 80%, 78% of, of Jews in Europe, country after country, say that anti-Semitism is increasing in their country and threatens them. Almost, nearly 80%, on the cusp, a cusp of 80%, that is a, a shocking statistic. Um, in France, the Jews in France report that anti-Semitism is threatening them. A substantial portion of the Jews in France are looking to leave France. Then you look at instances. In one week, just a you know, day in the life of, of Elan and my new role, days, in, in one week, a few days from each other, we had the chief rabbi, Buenos Aires, mercilessly attacked. And while they were saying, we know you're the chief rabbi of Amia, they were breaking his ribs. They broke nine of his ribs. Then we had a book fair in Oman. Oman, an ally, Gulf ally. Great, the Sultan has been great. So let me say that on the record. A book fair in Oman where title after title, page after page, was, was all the old classics, Protocols of the Elders of Zion, Mein Kampf, The International Jew, all in Arabic, edition after, it was page, it was an encyclopedia of the old classics and the new classics, an anti-Semitic orgy. Then there was a parade in Belgium, Belgium, in a town in Belgium, 
a float in a parade that depicted hook-nosed Orthodox Jews with, with, with monstrous faces sitting on bags of money with rats on their shoulders. That's the float going through town. This was a few days apart from each other, these instances. This is what we're dealing with. And then you look at college campuses in the United States where Jewish students are, are epithets are hurled at them. They're marginalized, not just Jewish students, pro-Israel students are called names. It's a hostile environment on many college campuses across the United States. And, and just to show you how urgent this is, look at the United Kingdom. Look at what's happening at the in the Labor Party in Britain. Let me tell you, I met privately with a very brave Labor MP who walked out of the Labor Party because she would have none of this. She would not sit at the same table with anti-Semites. And she told me, let me tell you what she told me, my hair stood on end. She said, this catastrophe that we're facing, this all started on the campuses. And we did nothing because they were students. And then it came to the Labor Party. And we did nothing because it was a fringe. And today it's over. We lost the party. We'll never get this party back. And that's why I left it. And let me tell you, that is a warning to us that we have to stand up and fight, not be complacent, and not waste a minute to fight this scourge of anti-Semitism, whether it's here or abroad, whether it's from the left or from the right. Jew hatred is Jew hatred. And whether it's clothed in the language of the right or the left, who cares? It's Jew hatred. And we're going to call it out. We're going to fight it. So on that, you mentioned in a event earlier that uh, Secretary of State Pompeo addressed APAC and made a, a, an on-the-record statement. Can you talk about that and why that's important? It was groundbreaking. It was groundbreaking. And he said, he looked at the crowd of 18,000, over 18,000, and he said, let me go on the record. When a cabinet member says, let me go on the record, that means I'm about to state the policy of the United States. That's what that means. He said, let me go on the record. Anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. That's what he said. That is the policy of this government in the why United States. Why is that States. so significant? The reason why that's so significant is because of all the forms and flavors of anti-Semitism today, the fastest growing, the tsunami of anti-Semitism, the metastatic cancer, is the anti-Semitism that is clothed in the language of the far left and that defines Jew hatred as hatred of the Jewish movement of national self-determination, and that is what Zionism is. That is the anti-Semitism that is so dangerous, and the reason why it's so dangerous is because all, unlike the anti-Semitism of, of the far right, by and large, in most countries in the world, unlike that kind of anti-Semitism, it is not in the fringe. It is, it is not marginalized. The anti-Semitism of anti-Zionism is embraced in large segments of Europe and in large segments of the United States. And it is a deep threat. There's nothing new about this. When my grandfather was arrested and dragged out of his home, he was charged with a crime. He went to court. You know what the crime was? Being a Zionist. That was the crime. And he was charged with handing out Zionist propaganda at a rally in Baghdad. He said, he said when his case was called, he said, Your Honor, I wasn't in Baghdad that day. I can bring witnesses. I was in Basra with the British. I'll bring witnesses to prove I was not even in Baghdad that day. The judge said, you are challenging this charge sheet for you two extra years, five years in prison for you, not the three years that his friends got. Five years. He did extra time. So we know it isn't really about handing out Zionist 
Zionist material, as though that's a crime anyway. But it's not even about that. It's a fig leaf. Anti-Zionism is a fig leaf for being a Jew. That's what it is. When a, a, a Jewish leader in Europe two months ago was called a dirty Zionist, he was called a dirty Zionist, we're not so stupid as to not understand what that really means. That term, dirty Jew, is an age-old term. And when you substitute Jew for Zionist, you don't make it any better. And, and now, this wave of anti-Zionism, when Jewish peoplehood is called into question, let me tell you, Zionism didn't begin in 1948. Zionism didn't start with the first Zionist Congress. Zionism was born in Parashat Lech Lecha. Zionism is, old, is as old as the Jewish people, and it was, it was consummated when Moses led the Jewish people to the Promised Land. That's what Zionism is. It is who, it is who the Jewish people are. Zionism is a central defining feature of the Jewish people as, a, as an ethnic national group. It is a central tenet of the Jewish religion as a faith. And so if you're, going to, if you're going to deny the Jewish people its identity, and if you're going to deny the Jewish religion its faith, its, its faith tenets, well, then that's anti-Semitism, pure and simple. We have to call it what it is, and we are going to call it what it is. We're going to tear down this false distinction between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. <clears throat> so my takeaway in hearing that is how much words matter and how much... Uh, when you combat this and anything else, how you define the problem really matters. So thank you for that. I think we should open it up for Q&A. When you ask your question, this is my own personal rule, please ask a question. Don't give a personal rant or uh, something like that. If there's background, <coughs> background is okay, but please ask a question. And Ilan, if we can just restate the question before it's answered. Sure. So who wants to go first? Go ahead, sir. Thank you. As a whole. Um, my question is, so when it comes to anti-Semitic attacks, the one in Pittsburgh, um, there's one in Kansas City uh, you know, a few years ago. Um, my question is, you know, all these people <coughs> commit these horrible acts, they become radicalized at some point. They're not born anti-Semitic and just, you know, those thoughts bubble in them and then they eventually act. At some point they are, they do become radicalized, whether it's through the internet or through anti-Semitic literature. So my question is, how do we fight not only anti-Semitism, but the initial radicalism and the radicalization of these people who go on to commit these horrible acts? Right. It's a great question. It's great to see you. Thank you. The question was, anti-Semites aren't born that way. They're radicalized in a process. How do we combat the radicalization of those anti-Semites in training, if you will? Look, um, it's all part of the same formula, right? You've got to confront it. Uh, if you're talking about uh, in the Arab world where we have more opportunities to make gains today than we have ever before because of the Iranian threat, so we're not going to be ignoring the Arab world. I'm going to be going there and meeting with leaders in the Arab world, and I'm very excited about moving the needle on anti-Semitism there. So if you're talking about institutional, government-sanctioned indoctrination of young people, well, that is radicalization. I mean, you can't get more pure than that. If, if the next generation of, of kids in these countries are being fed vile anti-Semitic propaganda, well, that's got to stop. And so the answer is very simply, if it's coming from the government, we have the address and apply extraordinary pressure on those countries to change what they're doing and to say it's not enough to make a declaration. It's not even enough to have some meetings with Israelis. Very important. 
because to a rapprochement with Israel is a way of, of, of fighting anti-Semitism. They will say that we stand with a Jewish state is one way of saying we stand with the Jewish people. So that is important. But it can't be the only thing. If you're feeding vile anti-Semitic propaganda to kids in schools, that's got to end. And so that's one way to fight radicalization. Of course, in this country and in most parts of Europe, you don't have a problem with textbooks and government-sanctioned anti-Semitism. So how do you fight it here? In Europe, where you don't have a First Amendment, sometimes hate speech is, is, is illegal and, and can actually be censored. In the United States, that can't happen. You can't censor speech. But what you can do is condemn it. People have, have, have fallen into this the, the most bizarre idea that because we have a First Amendment, you can't condemn what someone says. So when, when UCLA hosts the National Conference of SJP, the chancellor writes a piece and says, well, you know, they have a First Amendment right, and while some things might offend some people, you know, they have a right to say it. You know what? Call it what it is. If it's poisonous, vile hate speech, call it anti-Semitism. Condemn it. Say, you know what? They might have a right to say it. We might even defend their right to say it. But it is vile, despicable Jew hatred. And it's, it has no place. And they have a right to say it, but we're going to call it what it is. That's how you marginalize them. That's how you marginalize them. And until you're willing to stand up with unity and call it what it is and, and call them out on it and shame them for what they are, you'll never be able to, to marginalize them the way they're marginalizing Zionists on campus. Jewish kids on campus are afraid to say they're Zionists. They're afraid to say they're pro-Israel. These people should be afraid. They should be afraid to say, I hate the Jewish state. They should be afraid to, to accuse to accuse the Jewish state of committing genocide, just like they accused Jews of baking matzah with the blood of Christian children. That's what this is, a modern blood libel. They should be afraid to say it because it should be marginalized. Not that they should be afraid for their safety, God forbid, but they should be afraid to say it because, it, because they'd be so shamed to say it. They'd be so marginalized to say it. That's what has to happen. So we have to meet hate speech with uniform, resounding, loud condemnation. And we don't do that today. And that's what we need to be doing. I think the next special envoy that they pick should have some more passion. <laughs> <laughs> Sir. Uh, so how do you collaborate with other ethnic The question was, how do we collaborate with other um, ethnic and religious groups to fight anti-Semitism? That is a great question. And actually, that is exactly what we're doing. In the State Department, we are currently working on an Abrahamic faith, uh, not a dialogue, you know, there's a lot of dialogues that don't do anything, a conference to bring together Jewish and Muslim and Christian leaders in conferences throughout the world. We're doing it in Washington, we're doing it in other, other cities in the world to bring, uh, to bring leaders together to talk about the commonality of the three great monotheistic faiths in the world. What a, what a great statement that would be to talk about our, our similarities and our shared view of, of godliness and divinity and, and, and God's purpose. So that's one thing you can do. Another thing you can do is work with organizations. I just had a meeting with Muslim leaders, Muslim leaders of pro-Jewish, pro-Israel organizations. A Muslim leader who said, I am embarrassed. I am embarrassed by what's coming out of, of Muslim leaders in the United States and outside of the United States. There are wonderful Muslim leaders. Wait, this is not something that I'm, I'm not a Johnny-come-lately to this. I served on a task force when I was an AAPI leader 
with other leaders in the Los Angeles region, a, a pro-Israel task force ending to, to, to fight and combat uh, anti-Israel hatred. One of my partners, my colleagues, and a dear friend, we became great friends and partners, was Tashbi Syed, a Pakistani Muslim leader who did wonderful work and was the editor-in-chief of an amazing paper that talked about how Islam was, was a defender of, of Jewish rights throughout, throughout many years and could be again and must be again. So we are constantly working with partners and interlocutors in other ethnic groups and other, other faith communities to be able to say this is, this is a fight we must have together. Because incidentally, if you hate Jews and you don't fight Jew hatred, eventually you're going to have to defend yourself. You know that famous thing, first they came for the communists, but I didn't do anything because I wasn't a communist. They came for the Jews, I didn't do anything because I wasn't a Jew. Eventually they came for me, there was no one left to defend me. That's the history of anti-Semitism, and that's why we have to fight it. Quite similar to what you <laughs> talked about with the MP in the UK. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and this MP, Joan Ryan, just an incredibly brave leader, um, she doesn't have a home in the Labor Party anymore because, because of, uh, of, of what happened. And so, again, like I said before, we can't waste a minute or an opportunity. We've got to fight it everywhere and anywhere it rears its ugly head. So I will tell you, I was asked about, about JVP. Um, what is JVP? JVP is is Jewish Voices for Peace. And what, what others are, are in that category? Well, if not now, and, and, and they're organizations that, that actively, actively uh, promote Jew hatred on campus. And I will tell you, there was just at Columbia, I have the flyer in my phone, Israel Apartheid Week. Again, the blood libel, to label the state of Israel one of the world's greatest democracies, an apartheid regime. A, a vicious calumny. And this Israel Apartheid Week was promoted by JVP. That's what they do. They use the name Jewish to give a stamp of approval to anti-Semitism. That's what they do. And it's despicable. And, and so, look, we're going to call it what it is, and it doesn't matter where it comes from. You can call yourself Jewish, but if you're an anti-Semite, you're an anti-Semite. We're going to call it out and we're going to call it out wherever we find it, whether it's here or abroad, and whether they use the word Jewish or they use the word uh, uh, white, you know, white nationalists or whatever word they use, uh, because that's the company they're in. JVP is in the company with the, with the white supremacists and the rest of the Jew hatred. That's the company they're in, and we're going to call it out everywhere we see it. So, uh, Marty, pause. Good segue to your question that you asked earlier on, on oh. Facebook. Yeah, so hi again, Elon. It's great to see you. Congratulations, <coughs> old friend and brother. Um, working for a president who has nice words and actions to say about the state of Israel, but also surrounds himself with folks who have espoused white nationalist views, how do you view your <coughs> responsibility and role as congressionally mandated combat anti-Semitism when your boss's boss's boss, the ultimate boss, surrounds well, Only two. Only my boss's boss. <laughs> So the question was about my boss's boss, the president, um, and the people with whom he surrounds himself. Well, I think he surrounds himself with, with Mike Pence and Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt and David Friedman and John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. And let me tell you, that's a good company to be in. That's a very good company to be in. It doesn't get any better than that. I mean, you could not find people who believe in it more. Let me make this clear. 
I'm not here to be partisan. When, when President Obama did good things for the Jewish people, I stood up and said it. I stood up and I said, Mr. President, that was the right thing to do. When he increased, you know, when he increased security funding for, for Israel and supported Iron Dome, I said, Mr. President, it's the right thing to do. You have my support. And so, look, I call it like I see it. And, and you've got, in this leadership team, the most pro-Israel, pro-Jewish, passionate people who defend us and love us, not just defend, love the Jewish people. And it is just, it's just extraordinary. And, uh, and not only the declarations, Marty, you mentioned that the declarations about, you know, anti-Semitism being a vile poison, you come after the Jews. It's the actions. It's the actions. You know, uh, defunding UNRWA, um, refusing to allow U.S. tax money to pay the families of suicide bombers, walking out of... <laughs> Walking out of the Iran nuclear deal, you talk about one of the sources of anti-Semitism in the Middle East. Do you know one of the top sources of anti-Semitism in the Middle East is Iran? Iran is pushing anti-Semitic dogma and anti-Semitic venom throughout the Muslim world. That's what Iran is doing. And, and so I, I tell you, and, and what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. It's not like Las Vegas. What happens in the Middle East... What happens in the Middle East happens on the European street and on the American college campus. And so, and so to, to walk out of that deal that gave Iran hundreds of billions of dollars and then to recognize Jerusalem and, to, and to, to recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, it's not just declarations, Marty. It is, it is actions, each one of which would make this administration uncommonly pro-Israel and pro-Jewish. When you put them together... All of this in one half of one term, two years. It's unbelievable. And so again, I'm sure there are Democrats in the room, maybe many. It's okay to acknowledge that. It's not conversion. I promise you it's not conversion. To acknowledge, you know, Jew Jews talk about hakarata tov. When hakarata tov is an obligation, to recognize goodness is an obligation. You can disagree with this administration on a whole bunch of issues, that's okay. But to acknowledge, just like I said, when President Obama did good things, I acknowledged it. When President Trump and this incredible team does the kind of things for us that they do, we've got to say thank you. We've got to say, Mr. President, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And to do that and to say thank you doesn't mean, doesn't mean you're a Republican. It doesn't. You can do that as a Democrat, too. My, my wife is a lifelong Democrat. And she stands up and she says, look, you've got to hand it to them. The best ever for us, she says it, because that's the truth. you got to tell the truth. So <clears throat> piggybacking on that, if it goes the other way and there is an action that isn't, uh, I, I don't want to say pro-Israel, if there's an action that is, I think <clears throat> to, to Marty's question, a little slow to respond to something white supremacists <clears throat> are doing, will you then also stand up and call it like you see it? Look, I've, I've been unequivocal in, in calling out... Um, uh, anti-Semitism from the right. Uh, I'm more offended by anti-Semitism from the right. I'm a conservative. And, and when, when I hear anti-Semitism come from my side of the ideological spectrum, it offends me more. It brings discredit, you know, on my team. And so, and so I think, you know, this weaponization of, of anti-Semitism to, you know, call it out, it's all, it's all the other side. You know, I just think that's, that's, that does injustice to the cause. We've got we've to be fair and we've got to call it out, you know, everywhere, first of all, but certainly if it's coming from our own um, ideological camp. So I've been unequivocal about it. My first trip overseas will be to 
amazing allies that we have in Eastern Europe, amazing allies. Ukraine and Hungary and Poland are wonderful allies of the United States, wonderful allies of Israel, and they're doing great work. But we're going to have some candid conversations. I met with the, the Deputy Foreign Minister already of, of Hungary, wonderful Deputy Foreign Minister Magyar, great, great guy, and we had a great conversation. And, and the ambassador in, <clears throat> in Washington is wonderful. And, and I praised Hungary. You're safer to be a Jew in Budapest than you are to be a Jew in most of Western Europe. That's, that's a fact. You can't deny statistical fact. And, and Hungary just announced, and I want to thank the Hungarians for announcing that they're opening a diplomatic mission in Jerusalem. They're opening a diplomatic mission in Jerusalem. And so I thank the Hungarians for all those things, for, for keeping their Jews safe and for, for doing so many great things. But I also said, look, Hungary isn't perfect. There are real issues in Hungary. The United States isn't perfect. There are real issues in the United States. You could spend three days at the APAC policy conference and listen to all of the issues in the United States. Every speaker spoke about it. And so we're not perfect. We have issues to work on. Hungary's not perfect. And I said, look, I look forward to coming to Budapest and having that conversation with you. And you know what he said? He said, we look forward to having you and having that conversation. And so, you know what? We have to be candid, but fair. We have to be fair. We also have to be candid. And that's, uh, that's what the United States does. And so let me tell you a story. Um, when, when the Holocaust Museum opened, A.E. Pai, I was in the leadership of A.E. Pai then, and, and, and the students of A.E. Pai raised $150,000 for the U.S. Holocaust Memorial. <laughs> students raised that. Amazing. So, so I got a tour when it first opened. I got a tour of the Holocaust Museum. And, uh, and I came to an exhibit. That, that just stunned me. I stood there looking at this oh, big exhibit all about America's failure to bomb the railway lines leading to Auschwitz. And there were reconnaissance photos of those railway lines taken by our planes. We knew what those, where those trains were going. We knew what those camps were doing. And we flew over those rail lines. And, and Jewish leaders lobbied the White House and lobbied the Defense Department. One bomb, how many lives would that save? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And the United States said, no, we're not gonna divert the war effort. An enormous exhibit dedicated to that American failure. And when I looked at that exhibit, I felt so proud as an American that that's how my country deals with its past. The United States could have said, what do we have to apologize for? We're the ones that defeated Nazism. We're the ones that liberated Europe. We're going to apologize for something. But you know what? That's not the American way. Because when you really want to make the world a better place and when you really hold yourselves to the highest standards, you say, you know what? Even though we liberated Europe, even though we defeated Nazism, we also failed morally. We could have been better. And that's the magic of America. And so I tell these European leaders, I met with a foreign minister I met with the foreign minister of a country. I'm not going to say which one, but, but I, said, I told him that story, and I say, if that's how we deal with our past, how should you deal with yours? And so I look forward to taking that message to, to capitals in Europe and working with our friends and allies to, uh, to, uh, to build that better world that our children deserve. You got a little chutzpah. <laughs> I think so. I think we have time. That's maybe why for they picked me. Definitely. <clears throat> Probably one more. Who wants to go? Go ahead. So um, the one thing that struck me, that, that shook me to the core of what you said is uh, labor is lost. The MP that said labor is lost. Right. Let me be clear. She said it. Right. So I, yeah. Right. 
Um, I'm not confirming that. A short-term goal domestically, or you're talking about around the world? Short-term goal domestically, so that so that one of our parties isn't lost. So I think, look, can um, you give some some context to the question? Yeah. So the question was, um, <clears throat> given the fact that the Labour Party in the UK was lost, what are our short-term goals in the United States? When you say lost, <clears throat> what does that mean? Well, look, I'm quoting MP Joan Ryan. Right. I'm not stating that the Labour Party's lost, but she felt it was irrevocably, irretrievably lost to anti-Semitism. I hope that I hope and pray that's not true, and I think that it's very important that the mainstream parties in the United Kingdom and the mainstream parties in the United States both are pro-Jewish and pro-Israel. America is the most philo-Semitic country in the history of the world. We talk about tolerance. Jews aren't tolerated here. Jews are treasured, are embraced, are loved in the United States. That's that's the magic of America. So it's very important that we keep both parties in a bipartisan fashion, pro-Jewish and pro-Israel. And when we see imperfections in one party or another party, we've got to call it out. And we've got to make sure that, that we, you know, we keep both parties you know, on the same page of the playbook because being pro-Jewish and being pro-Israel should be a bipartisan issue. Now let me say something about, about bipartisan, that's right. Let me say something about <clears throat> bipartisanship. My office, uh, I said, was created by a bipartisan Congress in 2004. In the first day of the current Congress, a bill was introduced to give my office more clout, okay? That bill passed the House in this Congress, 411 to one. Now, let me tell you, Everett Dirksen, Senator Everett Dirksen once, once famously said, he was talking about two-thirds requirement. He said two-thirds, you can't get two-thirds for a Mother's Day resolution, that's what he said. <laughs> 411 to 1. And so, are there problems in our country today? Sure. Are there problems among some leaders? Are there problems on the U.S. college campuses? Sure. But the United States is the most philo-Semitic country in the history of the world. Now, that doesn't mean we should be complacent. That doesn't mean that when we see what's going on on campus, or when we see what's going on outside of campus, we not take an immediate, unequivocal stand. In fact, because the United States is the most philo-Semitic country ever. That's why we have to fight, because we've got to make sure it stays that way. We can't be complacent, we can't rest our, on our laurels, and when we see imperfections, we've got to fight to fix those imperfections. And that's what I intend to do, and that's what certainly all of us need to do together in bipartisan fashion. I'd like to end with a little Jewish trivia. I put a quote up on the screen. I'll read it, and then I'm going to ask you if you know who said this. In this troubled time, in a world that is on fire, what we need most of all is Jewish unity. I think uh, I said that. That's correct. Yeah. I said that. Elaborate on what this means. What do you mean by this? So, look, <laughs> I got asked a question about, about JVP. Let me tell you a story about JVP. A, a wonderful student leader at Stanford University introduced a, a resolution at Stanford to, to adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. Folks, this is not a controversial thing. The OSCE 
which is 57 countries, East and West, former Soviet republics, the OSCE voted 56 to 1 to adopt this definition of anti-Semitism, not controversial. So he introduced a resolution to have this adopted at Stanford, and he had support for it. Until JVP came forward and said, we don't support this and neither should you. We are part of the privileged majority. We are part of the problem, not part of the solution. We should be focusing on oppressed minorities. Jews are not oppressed minorities. Jews are privileged, and Jews are part of the problem. Don't support this. And so this great kid, Matt, who's an A-Pi, by the way, faced all support that he had erode and withdrew the resolution because he didn't want to see it go down in electoral defeat. Can I interrupt for a second? Yeah. Ask two, two questions. When was this going on? October. This was a few months ago. This was in October. And then why is Think it so important at a university like Stanford to have some... Well, resolution like this passed. Well, let me tell you why. Because things got so bad after, after Matt pulled this resolution. Things got so bad. A, a student leader at Stanford said Jews are controlling this campus. And a visiting lecturer that the university had invited, a visiting lecturer minimized the Holocaust in a lecture in class. And so students had enough. Mainstream students had enough. And so Matt, now this was two months after this disaster caused by JVP. Matt said, okay, now things have gotten so bad, I'm going to do this again. And now I have support. So he, he reintroduced the resolution. He had the promise of support of 100% of the Senate until JVP came forward and said, okay, we'll withdraw our opposition to this, to this resolution on one condition. You take out the Israel stuff. Take it out. Take it all out. We'll support it if you take it out. So Matt faced a choice. The choice was, do you walk away and get nothing, or do you, water, do you water down what you have so at least you get something passed? It's the same choice faced by some members of Congress recently. Now, I'm not going to pass judgment on what the right answer is, but Matt decided to water it down so that he gets something passed. And so he got it passed unanimously. So now, what the resolution is at Stanford that passed, the law of the land in the student council, is that it's anti-Semitism to beat up Jews. Newsflash. <laughs> but if you're going to accuse the Jewish state of genocide, if you're going to hang the blood libel on the Jewish state, have at it. Green light. You know who did that to us? The Jewish community did that to us. Segments of the Jewish community did that to us. And so when you're talking about Jewish unity, I talk about this everywhere I go when I'm addressing a Jewish audience, because Jewish unity is critical. It's not a luxury. Look, I'm going to fight anti-Semitism either way. You know, that's my job. And I'm going to fight anti-Semitism with the full weight of the United States of America, and that ain't too bad. But you know, to actually beat this, we need Jewish unity. Jewish unity is essential. We just finished celebrating the holiday that focuses on defeating anti-Semitism. That's what Purim is. Purim is the anti-Semitism not of temple worship or of, or, or of slavery in Egypt. Purim is about the pure genocidal anti-Semitism that sadly we've seen too many times in our history. That's what the plot was, to exterminate the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. And what happened? Mordechai comes to Queen Esther and says, maybe for this reason God put you here. Please save your people. Save your people, he pleads with her. And so what does she say? She says, I will risk my life for this. 
I'll go to the king. But you first tell the Jewish community three days of mourning, three days of fasting, three days of fasting and sackcloth and ash. And on the third day, I'll go to the king. The rabbi said, well, what's it with the mourning and the fasting and the sackcloth? And the answer is obvious. Queen Esther understood that without Jewish unity, there's no hope. But if the Jewish people stand together, if the Jewish people fast together, what does it mean to fast? It means to take collective responsibility for our condition and for our future. If the Jewish people do that together, then any challenge can be overcome. Anything can be overcome. Even the imperial decree that was signed and sealed and delivered, and even the wheels of genocide that had begun to turn, even that could be undone. If only we stand together. That's it. Is that a big ask? I don't think that's a big ask. Because you know what? We can disagree on a lot of things. We're very good at that. But when it comes to our survival, when it comes to, to our future, when it comes to the safety of our children, how dare we disagree? How dare JVP go to war against the survival of the Jewish people? How dare that happen? And so we have to, we have to stand together as a Jewish community, shoulder to shoulder, left and right and Democrat and Republican, shoulder to shoulder, to say that it doesn't matter what we disagree with on other issues. When it comes to our survival, the survival of the Jewish people and the Jewish state and the Jewish religion, we are fighting this thing together, shoulder to shoulder. If we do that, let me tell you, we're going to win. We're going to win this fight. We're going to build tikkun olam b'malchut shaddai. And we will build that better future that our children deserve. That's the future we will have. On that note, special envoy Carr, you've dedicated your life to the Jewish people, to your country. Thank you for being with all of us here today. Thank you for being a friend and a mentor. And also thank you for your service. Thank you, Chaim. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways Podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.